Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino shares from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, the tenth part of the series, The Household of God. And now, here's Carrie. Before we uh, begin, if you don't mind, I'd like everybody just to smile because we have so much to be grateful for. Let's, uh, let's adore him in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has done it all and that we live in your grace. We ask you that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive all the good things that Christ has already provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. But before we get to that, Gary W. Damaris, in his commentary on Timothy, writes this. Before we examine the text itself, it's, just, it's important to establish some ground rules on how we will read it. So let me suggest three. We must read the passage in light of all other scripture. We must distinguish between passages that describe events or practices at that time and those that clearly teach principles designed for, designed for universal and timeless application. This ground rule is extremely important. For example, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, it's one thing to read that Jesus turned water into wine, but that is no indication that we are called to do the same thing in the continuing church. Similarly, just because certain things happened, as described in the book of Acts, does not necessarily mean that they are to be regular patterns in the church. It may not be easy to decide whether a given passage was intended primarily as a narrative, a teaching, or both. But the question must be considered. And number three, we must read the passage within its cultural, social, and historical setting. And it shouldn't startle anyone to be told that the Bible was written by real people struggling with real problems in real places and times. So to read it with first century eyeglasses and hear it through 21st century headsets is not always easy. But that is our task and our privilege. So an understanding of the social and cultural background of the New Testament period is essential. Christians in Ephesus both Jewish and, were from both Jewish and Greek backgrounds. And Phil, in his talk, so elegantly covered what the Greek society was like in those days. In the Jewish tradition, a woman was regarded more as a piece of property than a person, and she was without rights or power. And there was a Jewish prayer in the first century in which a man thanked God that he was not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Paul writes to Timothy, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them, because they are brothers. 
Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and to urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicious suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. <clears throat> but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Amen. Have you ever faced a skeptic? Maybe a family member or a friend at work who threw slavery at you as evidence that the Bible can't be trusted. They argue that if you're using the Bible as your authority on what is right and wrong, then you're basing your deeply beliefs on a morally deficient revelation. If the Bible is wrong about something as elementary as slavery, how can it be trusted in its central claims about Jesus? And so the issue of slavery often comes up when people wish to discredit the Bible to show that it's not worth of our admiration or our trust. And sometimes these criticisms really sting. Sometimes Christians don't know how to answer, especially when the text in view is one like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-2. to Some people read this text and they think that because Paul tells slaves to honor their masters, he must also be endorsing slavery. But is it really true that telling these Christian slaves to submit to their masters is equal to approving slavery? The answer is no. Telling someone to admit, submit to an authority does not imply that that authority is morally approved. Because the Bible often condemns the means by which slaves were taken as slaves. In the first century, Slavery wasn't race-based like it was in the American South. People were taken as slaves through a number of ways. Warfare, piracy, highway robbery, infant exposure, and punishment of criminals. And in all of this, there was always prevalent the issue of kidnapping people in order to enslave them. So what does the Bible say about kidnapping? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, 
The Apostle Paul says that kidnapping or man-stealing is against God's law. And most interpreters recognize that man-stealing was for the purpose of slavery. The New Testament, New Testament forbids Christians from forced violence against slaves. Ephesians 6, verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The New Testament commands Christians to treat slaves like brothers. Paul wrote to the slave owner, Philemon, about his runaway slave, Onesimus. Paul told Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. The Bible condemns racism. God intends to gather worshipers for himself from every tribe and language and people and nations. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And we know that in Christ, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3, verse 11. So no, the Bible does not endorse slavery, nor the evil fundamentals in slavery. On the contrary, it abolishes it in the name of Jesus. When the critics assault scripture, they often make confident assertions about things that they know very little about. And in this case, when they attack the Bible's alleged endorsement of slavery, they're misrepresenting what the Bible actually teaches. In the first century, slaves formed a distinct group within the society of the Roman Empire. In verse 1 of chapter 6 of Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul addresses those who had unbelieving masters to respect their masters. Why? So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. In verse 2, the other situation is addressed in which the master of the Christian slave was a brother in Christ. And Paul insists that Christian slaves serve their Christian masters with the special motive that they are bringing service and joy to their brothers in Christ. Some commentators read into this letter that this is also a message to modern-day employees and employers. But in my version, Paul says slaves, not employees, and masters, not employers. Places in the New Testament that talk directly to employees and employers are these, and you won't have time to write them down, so if you're interested, you can see me after. They're Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, <clears throat> Luke chapter 3, verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 and 18, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 and 23 and 24, Romans chapter 4, verse 4, James chapter 5, verse 4, and that's just to name a few. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, I believe, is written to all Christians. Whether you're a slave, an employee, an employer, a master, a woman, or a man. And it says this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And that covers it all. 
Eventually, the gospel broke the bonds of slavery. <clears throat> but not until someone like an Abraham Lincoln or a William Wilberforce put his life on the line. Or a former slave ship captain like John Newton, who wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Paul and the early Christians had their reasons for not attacking the system. And that is something I suppose we'll have to accept and respect. Let's remember there was no democracy in the first century and citizens had little or no say. And it wasn't until the 18th and 19th century that democratic countries abolished slavery. And it wasn't until 1929 that Canada acknowledged that women were considered people and with all the rights that a person is entitled to. So we have to wonder what future generations of Christians will have to say about us. Paul was born, raised, and lived in a society that accepted slaves and women as non-persons with no rights. So we have to ask ourselves, is Paul writing to Timothy about that society and its practices, or is he writing for timeless application when he talks about women and slaves? In the next section of his letter to Timothy, Paul warns Timothy about wasting his time and energy on false teachers who enjoy nothing more than debates and arguments. Such teachers actually regard godliness as a means of getting wealthy. And this thought leads to some profound insights about the dangers of pursuing wealth. In verse 3, the very command to teach, to teach brings to mind the false teachers who were polluting the atmosphere of Ephesus. The picture is that of teachers who use words and arguments that become smoke screens for godless and selfish living. The key to true teaching is found in verse 3, verse 3, are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine that is according to godliness. These false teachers use godliness as a means to financial gain. And here we have to ask ourselves some troubling questions. To what extent are our appeals for others to accept Christ based upon selfish motives, motives of gain? To what degree are our appeals for others to give is based upon the promise that God will give them more in return for what is given. Many television evangelists tell the story of a person formerly in dire personal and financial straits who, after receiving Christ, then became the recipient of more money and security than ever before. The evangelist then implies that if you will support his ministry, God will give you money in return. And such appeals to materialistic gain make a mockery of stewardship in that the person who responds to them ends up trying to use God for material gain. The refusal to, to regard God as a means of gain might be costly to churches and movements whose ultimate goal is to attract more financial supporters. 
Perhaps the time has come to question some of the Christian practices in the world today. And what is Timothy called to do? He is to withdraw himself from such practitioners. There comes a time when we cannot waste our time and energy in more debates and arguments. Such people are not worthy of any more attention. And withdrawal is not always easy for most of us because it can appear to be surrender. And if you're like me, competitive at heart, you prefer to stay and win the battle. But a strategic withdrawal, however, is sometimes in the best interest of one's continuing witness and ministry. And that is not always easy. Before Paul continues his urgent and personal appeal to Timothy, he pauses for a moment on the theme of money. The very thought that some think they can use God as a means of gain leads Paul to reflect more deeply on the meaning of money. Growth in godliness does not guarantee material gain. The gain of godliness is godliness itself. And with it comes contentment. Or has someone else rephrased this? If you have a strong belief, savor it. But don't waste your time trying to convince others. They will make their own choices no matter what you tell them. And it will only bring you frustration. Live your faith and set an example. Live true to your beliefs and let that memory sway them. Paul says in verse 10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This is sometimes misspoken as the love of money being the root of all evil. That's not what Paul says. There are other roots to evil. Paul says the love of money is our root, not the root. The first step in developing an attitude towards money is to put it in perspective. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. In other words, you can't take it with you. And if we take Jesus seriously in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, then we must truly be aware of the force of his words. Jesus is insisting that God will take care of our basic needs. And when seen in this light, the multiplication and accumulation of wealth can actually become a curse rather than a blessing in two ways. Number one, it removes us from the place of being truly dependent upon God. And the management of wealth demands more and more of our time and energy. So here's some of the big questions we have to ask ourselves. Is our trust in God only limited to spiritual things? Or is he the Lord of all of life? Does God really promise to provide for our necessities? What are necessities? At what point do we cease cease expanding our needs list? How much is enough? Calvin Miller, in his book, A Requiem for Love, writes this. A beggar asked a millionaire, how many more dollars would it take to make you truly happy? And the millionaire, reaching his gnarled hand into the beggar's cup, replied, only one more. 
Paul concludes his statement to Timothy by pointing out what the pursuit of wealth does to us. The desire to be rich causes us to fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. The issue is not having wealth, but desiring it. The desire for wealth has a way of becoming all-consuming. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, Jesus counsels us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in verse 11 and 12 of Timothy, Paul calls <coughs> Timothy man of God. And this is contrasted with the false teachers and the lovers of money. The verbs in verse 11 are dramatic. Flee and pursue. He is to flee in flight from the false teachers and the love of money, and he is to be in pursuit of the listed virtues. Flight and pursuit are a vivid way of viewing the life of Christian discipleship. There are things which must be constantly avoided and not just passively. And to flee implies that something is after us. Pursuit is the other side of Christian discipleship. Here is the active and intentional pursuit of specific virtues. Righteousness has to do with what is right, both towards God and towards people. Godliness is patterned after the nature of God, as we see it revealed in Jesus himself. Faith, love, patience, and gentleness are among those qualities always tied to Christian living. To flee and pursue, to flee and pursue, Paul adds two more verbs in verse 12. Fight and lay hold. The emphasis on fight is not about competition or combat, but upon a disciplined and determined struggle. Faith is a continuous struggle requiring intentional effort. The tense of the verb lay hold in Greek describes a completed reality, a single happening. This suggests that one can come to the point of holding on to the reality of eternal life as an assured possession. While the fight of faith is a continuing process, the assurance of life eternal by God's grace and mercy is a settled reality. Paul basically tells Timothy that as Christians, we should show the qualities that Jesus showed. And this is what Jesus calls us to be. The Apostle, Apostle John, in his first letter, puts it better than I can ever say. We love God because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet he hates his brothers and sisters, they are liars. For anyone who does not love his brothers or sisters whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have never seen. And God has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their brothers and sisters. People came to Jesus. They came to him at night. They touched him as he walked down the street. 
They followed him around the sea. They invited him into their homes and they placed their children at his feet. Why? Because he refused to be a statue in a cathedral or a priest in an elevated pulpit. He chose instead to be a touchable, approachable, and reachable Jesus. There is not one person who considered him too holy or too divine to touch. There was not one person who was reluctant to approach him for fear of being rejected. When Jesus came to earth, he shocked everyone by refusing to play the acceptance game. In those days, there were rules that disqualified people from approaching God on the basis of behavior, gender, society, and health. Then Jesus showed up and he made a beeline for sinners, foreigners, women, and lepers. It's almost as if, as if his intent was to show us that grace is superior to the law. Jesus received everyone and accepted the unacceptable and loved the unlovable to reveal, reveal his Father's gracious heart of acceptance. God is not willing that any should perish. His desire is to have every single one of his children come home. The gospel is not an invitation to accept Jesus. It's the stunning announcement that Jesus accepts you. The universal and timeless application in our reading this morning is Paul instructing Timothy and us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And in another letter letter to the Romans, Paul says, and the greatest of these is love. So how do we show these qualities? By the grace of God. Jesus came to show us God's grace and how to live in that grace with a thankful heart and with the love of Jesus for all people created in the image of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the time that we could spend this morning and we pray that we would live in light of this gospel and that our lives would be changed that you use us to change those lives as well. And, uh, I just pray that as we go, we would live in light of things we learned today and that you would bring us together again next week. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.